Blog Talk Radio.
show. And then note, like always, for those who are not familiar with Africa on the Move, the way we get started with our party is to introduce to you our political analysts and panelists for the day. So at this point in time, we are bringing Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haiki Kamafi Mishoki. I'm currently with African Awareness, and I'm interested in institution building. Uh, You know, one of the things, Brother Africa, I recently read an article, and it talked about the despair that exists in the African community. Uh, It talked about also the hopelessness that appeared to be pervasive in the African community. Now, the levels of uh, depression, excuse me, is rising, and the resulting feeling of isolation among so many young Africans is astounding. Why is it given the historical nature of oppression? We are hard pressed as a community to create a sense of emotional well being and belonging among so many in our community. It seems to me, Brother Africa, that the very basis of self determination starts with a struggle for autonomy. Why is it difficult to innovate institutions that fundamentally provide a sense of self worth by minimizing the negative impact of racial social engineering? Historically, we depended on churches, um, but traditions sometimes reinforce notions of inadequacy in the community. So therefore, institutions geared toward reinforcing the can-do spirit must be erected by community institutions with a clear focus on empowerment. So it seems to me the number one focus for our community is simply a question of empowerment. And it's not a question so much as how we do it, but the question is when we, when we, get, when we get it done. Uh, clearly, we have to start creating some means in which we begin to empower, particularly the young people. And if the situation in society deteriorates, then we don't have to uh, guess about in terms of the impact in terms of the African community, both psychically and, and, and materially. So clearly we got these, 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 these broad-ranging problems in which we have to begin to address, and we have to create these institutions, because without these institutions, there's no way possible in terms to deconstruct what precisely is happening to us and the impact is happening on us. So we need those institutions. We need to seriously think about what's going on. Without seriously thinking about what's going on, then we, we leave ourselves in a very uh, precarious situation. And having said that, Brother Africa, I'm going to thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Haki. Following Brother Haki, and now we're bringing Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, G.C., Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And Father and Brother Anthony, we now bring in our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I called Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. I thank you once again, brother, for allowing me to be on the show. It's an honor, brother Moses. All right, to our listening audience, again, this is Africa on the Move. If you have any comments or questions you'd like to make or you'd like to share what's going on in your world and the community, 
right now. We encourage you to call in at one three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. We're now going to our first segment on what's going on in your world and the community, Brother Hackey. Talk to us. Yeah, you know, uh, my my whole thing is this whole question of, of homelessness, and I think it's something that we have to begin to take very seriously, particularly when we look in terms of the kind of newness taking place in the economic realm, which does nothing in terms of stimulating the economy. In fact, it leads to uh, greater uh, discrepancies and greater gaps in terms of budgets. So clearly this question of homelessness is something that we have to begin to address. Uh, recently I read an article which talked about the, uh, the lack of affordable housing, and they talked about the impact on workers. Uh, and this is particularly true for minimum wage workers. Uh, they talked about the fact that um, um, the minimum wage workers, and keep in mind when I talk about minimum wage workers, I'm not talking about people without a college degree or just a high school degree. I'm talking about people with a college degree, people with BAs, BSs, Masters, and PhDs. In fact, in terms of when you look at the whole picture in terms of, you know, uh, homelessness, uh, lack of housing, then this, this particular group represents a, a, a larger percentage of the overall population uh, in terms of wage earners. Uh, and also, according to this report issued by the Huffington Post, a person working minimum wage would have to work 127 hours per week to afford a two-bedroom apartment rented for $1,900 a month or 103 hours per week for an $800 apartment in the United States. And these numbers take into account also uh, food, clothing, transportation, and utilities. Now, the pertinent question for me, Brother Africa, you know, uh, as subsidized apartments are being in- increasingly eliminated, you know, by the housing and urban development, uh, one of the things is that uh, when we talk about these low these low wages or these minimum wage wages, and clearly people's ability in terms of you know uh, housing becomes compromised. And the, and the question is, what are we going to do as a community given this, this hard reality? And so, as I stated before, I think we have to keep in mind. So it's often convenient for people to say, well, when we talk about low wage earners, we're only talking about people who don't have high school education. Well, that's not the situation. The situation in America that they just this, this minimum wage impact applies to people across the board. So the question of education is not really germane in terms of discussion, and we have to understand that it's increasingly affecting more and more people, those with, with college degrees and high degrees uh, in, in, in the university. So clearly we got a problem, and so the question is what are we going to do as a community in terms of addressing this question? Because clearly those in positions of power are adamant that the needs and concerns of working people are not to be addressed. And if the opposition is that our needs and concerns have to be addressed in terms of homeless, in terms of housing, then the question is, what are we going to do as a community? So I think it's important that we keep in mind that this question in terms of uh, homelessness as it equates to, uh, you know, uh, minimum wage wages is real problematic, and it's something that we have to begin to address at some point. Well, Brother Haki, we're going to get on that task, and we're going to do something about like that. we got to change that situation. We're going to work on that. Okay, let's go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, several things. Uh, let's see. Um, there, uh, the uh, Iran uh, uh, blew up a, a, a U.S. drone in the uh, Persian Gulf uh, recently, and it infuriated the U.S. government. Uh, and, uh, the question that, 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 uh, 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 you know, that people should be asking is what is a U.S. Uh, drone doing in the Persian Gulf in the first place? 
you know, um, and uh, which is nowhere near uh, the U.S. and uh, and uh, Iran is is nowhere near a possible threat, uh, you know, to the U.S. as the U.S. government claims. Also, uh, that there were several Juneteenth uh, commemorations. Uh, in several uh, African communities inside the U.S. Juneteenth, uh, for those who may not be familiar, uh, commemorates uh, the date that chattel slavery ended in Texas, which is June 19, 1865, approximately two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. And uh, uh, let's see, a few months after the 13th Amendment was added to the U.S. Constitution. What, uh, what a lot of Africans don't understand is the fact that, um, is the fact that I, I, you know, I think that, that Juneteenth is overrated in the fact that it really did not free any uh, Africans from, the, uh, uh, from, from, from their oppression by racism. And capitalism, and a lot of the problems, uh, you know, still exist to this day. But it kind of like galvanized some of the nationalist forces inside our community. And also, there was a hearing on reparations in the U.S. Congress uh, last week. I think last Wednesday. Uh, again, there's been a call for uh, for reparations for several years. And uh, and that has not gained much traction inside the U.S. And I think that's primarily due to the fact uh, of uh, a- Africans' lack of organ- political organization. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We now make our transition to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, I thought Brother Anthony did a good job of stole my thunder, so to speak. Uh, I think it was a sign of sanity when President Trump uh, called off the uh, attack that was that was imminent upon Iran uh, due to his orders, and uh, he decided that it wasn't uh, uh, equal uh, retaliation. Uh, there was going to be 150 people killed, and he he showed some signs of sanity when he called it off because of his 150 people. Um, certainly, Iran has not killed any, any U.S. people. Uh, uh, the shooting down a drone was just that, a drone. And, uh, and uh, also, Tahasi uh, um, uh, coach spoke at the... Uh, the reparation hearings that was over on Juneteenth in Congress. Uh, there was a brother, uh, I think he was from Columbia University, who spoke against reparations. I thought that was very interesting. It's a young, young intellectual, uh, intellectualizing the way they need for reparations. Uh, other than that, I'll, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brother Moses. Um, brother Haki. Uh, you raised a real interesting um, aspect and concept on the phenomena of this question of lack of affordable houses 
even when it comes to those who will, who will be considered um, individuals with, with, with academics credentials cannot f- afford these homes and everything. You know, I wonder in terms of, for example, in Washington, D.C., you know, the federal government, they have redefined a new concept of the poor. Uh, from my understanding, speaking with some of the people in the movement of uh, fair housing and uh, affordable housing in D.C., they tell me that there's a new guideline in which the federal government for those that are in the area up in D.C. is that those who will qualify for subsidized housing there must have an average income between 100 to $150,000. That is the new poor. So what I'm saying to you is, there seems to be a deliberate attempt to create this vacuum in this problem. And again, for me, it seems like it's another aspect of the war against the people here in this country, and they don't realize it. Your response to that narrative, Brother Hackey? Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems to me that increasingly, you know, we talk about the uh, um, um, the desperate situation of this economy. Uh, clearly, uh, there are some... Um, Perceptions uh, being um, um, being legitimized, and namely this notion that in terms of one's worth is closely tied uh, to housing. And so, in the minds of a lot of the elite, the question in terms of those who deserve housing are those who provide some worth to society. Now, as a consequence, when you talk talking about uh, working class people, the position of the elite is that well, working class people don't really con- contribute to society. Of course, you and I understand that's erroneous. That's completely false. We understand the contribution of working class people to society. But when it comes to housing, increasingly what's happening is that, you know, it's, it's become a scarcity. In part, it's become a scarcity because it's all by design. If we think back to 2008, the whole prime debacle in which, um, you know, they overinflated the value of houses, for the, you know, uh, <clears throat> in terms of, you know, in terms of ensuring that the 10% of the population benefit from any kind of stocks or bonds that were that were that were traded. Keep in mind that when that when that project failed and this economy went down south, it was a situation where, you know, all these apartments, all these um all these homes uh, became available. And what happened was that you had these organized groups in the capitalist class who said, Listen, here's an opportunity to strike and they did. They essentially took 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 their wealth and they brought all that real estate for very low prices. They brought it, and as a consequence, because they own all the real estate, they were in a strategic position to determine the price of, of, of the housing. And so, therefore, their position was that in order for us to maximize profits, we must downplay the importance in terms of housing for all Americans and start talking about the importance in terms of one's ability to pay in terms of having access to housing. So clearly, well, I'm not surprised when you look at Washington, D.C., and you look at the situation where they're saying, well, you've got to make, make $150,000 a year to qualify for subsidized housing. And what they're saying is that their houses are just so outrageous in terms of their assessments, uh, you know, that they're not even going to pretend that they give a damn about poor people and that the pursuit is for that dollar bill. And that's precisely why they're doing what they're doing. And it seems to me that in people in society who who need, uh, and most people do, need, you know, housing, particularly subsidized housing, it seems to me if you don't have some adamant movement, some very strong, some very tenacious movement toward your right to housing, it's not going to happen. We look at New York City, for example, in terms of historically subsidized housing that exists in New York. Now, anybody who ever lived in New York knows the housing is extremely expensive. 
and the and the, and the, the landlords and the ruling the, the ruling elite for a long, long time have been advocating to destroy, uh, you know, uh, subsidized housing for the longest time. Well, that movement is just beginning to gain fruition, and now they're in a situation where they're in the process of kicking people out of their subsidized housing, and those rents all automatically jump from say eight hundred dollars a month to maybe two twenty three hundred dollars a month. So clearly, the working people, you know, um, middle income folks, simply can't afford to to to, to partake in that kind of, uh, of um, in that kind of real estate market. So clearly, it's a problem. So the question is, of course, always. What are people going to do? This is reality, and uh, you know we can. No matter how you look at it, no matter how you slice it, your bottom line is all about profitability. It's not about humanity. And we talk about a capitalist system which is vicious to its core, and so therefore they don't have a problem in terms of you know the, the multitude of homelessness that exists in America. It doesn't bother them. Certainly, the multitude of homelessness around the world doesn't bother them. So clearly, we got our work cut off us in terms of addressing this ill, and it's a systemic problem because as long as you got capitalism, you got nobody advocating for working people. Uh, you got a problem. You only got lobbyists lobby, you know, uh, lobbying for the interests of the very, very wealthy. And because the very, very wealthy controls most of the real estate market, they're in a strategic position to, do, to get what they want done. And namely what they want done is to, to profit off the expense uh, or the misery of the masses of people for the sole purpose of making tons and tons of money, besides what they're doing. And one of the things that finally I conclude this, Brother Africa, it's important I point this out. And when we talk about in terms of, um, you know, this investment in real estate, you know, one of the things historically, you know, for the last 15, the last 10 years, people have been talking about is that the, the, the stocks haven't been performing very, very well. And the capitalist class is always looking for investments that's going, they can maximize their profits. Well, they found that opportunity in housing. So, therefore, because, you know, the, the, the payoffs and in investment in, in real estate is so high, Increasingly, more and more of these wealthy people, corporations are investing in this real estate, which drives up the price of, of, of the rents or, or, or the mortgages. So clearly, the, the emphasis is not on the people. It's not on humanity. It's about the bottom line. And unless we fundamentally understand the reality and organize, and, and particularly the working people and or African people, until we understand that fundamental economic reality, we'll continue to be deceived by this notion that, you know, you know if we just hope for the best, it's going to be all right. Well, you know what? The bottom line is, this is a capitalist system, and there, and, and, and the hope is futile. What you have to do, you have to act. You have to become organized. You have to become educated. You have to work. To, I mean, fight hard to, to do what you have to do in terms of putting end to to this insanity and to push forward your right you know, to um, to housing. You know, Brother Hackey, earlier in your introduction, you mentioned a concept called racial social. Uh, Engineering, can you explain that and how does that impact on our people and our communities? Well, the, 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 the thing is that in the context of capitalist society, one of the things they want to do, they want people to believe that your worth is, is predicated upon the kind of job you got, the kind of status you hold, the kind of wealth that you possess, the kind of house you live in, or the kind of, even the kind of car you drive. So the problem is that once you get people thinking that their wealth, their, their worth is defined by exterior factors, and once people internalize that notion, then you can pretty much make them act any way you want them to act. In the African community, you've got a situation where, let's say, for instance, you're black conservatives who say outrageous things which they know are not true, but they understand that if they say those outrageous things, they're going to get, they're going to get paid. And so that's what they do. And so what, so what happens is that those positions of power are able to create this archetype in the African community 
uh, those African people who believe that their worth is in fact defined upon based upon what they earn uh, or their status in society. And so, therefore, it's, a, it's, it's one of the means they use, utilize in terms of not only retarding, you know, any type of movement, progressive movement in, in the African community, but more importantly, dividing the African community along class lines. And so, when we talk about the racial social engineering, it's designed to make sure the African people work as, uh, act a certain way. And so, often we talk about the slave mentality that exists in so many of our people. Uh, the slave mentality is not a fluke, it's not an accident, it's all by design. When you look at our social, economic, political systems, it's all geared toward making sure that you create a, a people who behave in a slave-like fashion. So this is fundamentally a problem. This is something that we have to begin to address and understand. But first and foremost, we have to understand that this, this propensity among our people to act like slaves is not something that's inherent or innate. It's something that's conditioned. Uh, it's called social engineering. So this is important that we understand that. So once we reject social engineering, then we fundamentally understand that we have a right to, to, to affordable housing, we have a right to jobs, we have a right to quality education, not this inferior education historically that African people have received in America and throughout the world, but we have a right to quality education. Uh, we have a right um, to, 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 to feed our families. Once we understand that the fundamental reality, then we reject any kind of racial social engineering. But unless we understand that process in terms of how they go about doing it, we acquiesce because we don't understand that what we're doing is acting in a manner in which they want us to act as opposed to being uh, free thinkers, as opposed to being, you know, um, uh, uh, as opposed to being uh, autonomous in terms of our thoughts, we tend to echo those, those, those values, those sentiments, those beliefs by the ruling class, not understanding that in doing so, we undermine our own, own calls for freedom. So clearly, racial social engineering is a problem, but we have to become acknowledged with the fact that it does exist and it does impact on our people psychologically. And to my rest of the panelists, you know, as we discuss these very issues, y'all also feel free to join in and speak to issues that I'm raising among um, the segment at this point in time. Um, yeah. Anthony, you talk about a little bit about the U.S.-Iran um, confrontation dealing with this drone incident. I'm just curious in terms of the narrative that's being played out. I'm going to raise something, and I'd just like to get your response to this. Um, it's very difficult to believe many things that you see in, in, in the media today. Many things are, are created, are fake news, as they say. And looking at how this incident occurred, or what they claim occurred, I'm often wondering if uh, Donald Trump may have been telling the truth based on some reports I've seen where he said he never had he never authorized a strike um against Iran and it makes me look like as if he is again unstable, you know, a madman. He's someone that, you know, can't really be trusted. Then they're creating a narrative because, you know, the Warhawks, they want to do the things that they want to do. They want to create walls to have competition. Because there are billions and billions of dollars of money to be made. Now, given up to this point, many people see this 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 guy in the office, Mr. Trump, as a lunatic. Do you think they may be creating a scenario where they can go around him and do these things and say that you know he may have authorized it, but but then again, knowing that he didn't authorize it, but they say that under the pretense, pretense, he's really unstable and mentally ill. 
They can use that to do what they want to do as well. They possibly replace him, saying that he's doing things he's not doing, and this is what they have set up. This is the dynamic they have set up today to possibly make this reality become real. In terms of now, we can use his looseness, aloof, being very loose or unstable, as a means to do what they want and run things around them and have the public to, um, you know, um, buy into their, 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 their points of view and policies in terms of um, things that they want to do to other other countries if you don't approve and go along with that game. Your response to that possibility or this narrative? I think I think that is a, a very real possibility, and and uh, and what you're alluding to is the fact that actually uh, presidential power is not absolute. That actually uh, that that actually uh, uh, that that is actually the movers and shakers be, that are that, that are not uh, that are behind the scenes. Uh, uh, the, the 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 heads of these multinational corporations that stand to profit from such a conflict that are behind the decisions that are being taken, and uh, this is a dangerous situation. I mean, um, it would be disastrous for uh, 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 you know for uh, for the uh, for you know for the masses of U.S. people who are better brought of any, uh, you know, military conflict that, that would occur between the U.S. and Iran. And it's not the, it's not the ruling 1%, one, 1% uh, children that would bear the, the brunt of the cost of this conflict. It would be the working masses. So I think, uh, so I think people need, uh, 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 need to follow these developments very closely and be alert to what's going on not only within the U.S., but also outside of it, and, uh, and 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 people should be questioning why uh, what, 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 why the why the U.S. is sending two hundred million uh, uh, dollar drones, uh, uh, you, you know, all the way to uh, you know to to to, to uh, towards uh, Iran. Yeah, because you know there's also discussion that. During the time of the so-called shooting down of the drone, there was some explosion took place in Saudi Arabia, damaged one of their um, one of their major facilities that deal with fresh water. And one of the stories is that you know they say the Iranians were behind it. But the point I'm making is that with this type of compli- uh, complication, I don't think the world understands the real implication of it, because Iran is in a position to strike its enemies not just the U.S., and withdraw everybody into this phenomenon. Your assessment on, on that narrative in terms of not the that, U.S. That, 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 is, that is true. I mean, it would not, if, uh, if, the, if there was a military confrontation, it would involve more than just the U.S. and Iran. It would uh, it, 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 it would involve uh, it would involve most of the countries in Asia. Because uh, let's see, because uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, this would this would be a security tra- uh, threat to Russia, and also uh, to a certain extent China, and also a lot of the a lot of the the the, uh, the petroleum that comes to uh, 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 that that comes to to Europe co- uh, comes through 
the, the the Persian Gulf region. So you uh, so 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 it, it would be uh, 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 let's see, it would be a very uh, a, a very complex and messy struggle, and also uh, compounded by the fact that you have uh, Zionist interests at play. Because uh, you, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it, Israel serves as a beachhead for imperialism in uh, Western Asia. So, uh, so, so this is this is a very uh, a, a very dangerous situation and could have uh, very far-reaching implications, and something yeah. that the U.S. could not easily get itself out of. Yeah, because I think to many sources, the Iranians, they claim the Iranian government has alluded to, if it takes place, that also Saudi Arabia and the Zionist city of Israel will not go unnoticed. They will be hit as well. So it has world implications that people need to be, you know, concerned with. And, Brother Anthony, you made an illusion or you made an assumption on this question of June 10th in association with freedom. One of the things I want to say in terms of when you're talking about oppressed people, one of the things we have a tendency to do is to embrace institutions that are not necessarily to the best interests of our well-being. And I'm saying that in the context of many people see this, this particular celebration, June 10th, as a means of our people becoming free. And that's a narrative I think is very dangerous to continue to push the narrative that we are a free people. What can we do to change the narrative of how that institution is being positioned or being viewed as we're being free to raising the contradiction that the real reality is our people never acquired their freedom as of today. This is what we're frightened about. Mm-hmm. I think we have to educate people as to the truth about our history. We, uh, uh, through, uh, through our ancestors' struggle, we were able to put an end to chattel slavery. That did not end, uh, unfortunately, that did not put an end to, uh, to racism, uh, white supremacy, and uh, capitalism inside the U.S. Our oppression took another form, a more, a more, a more insidious form. And, uh, and and uh, and and we became uh, and we became uh, you know we and, and we basically got another form of enslavement, mental enslavement, instead of uh, you know uh, you know physical uh, instead of the whips and chains. And uh, this has confused that people for decades. And uh, and uh, and uh, we have to. Um, Educate our people, especially our youth, as to the truth of our, of our history inside inside these borders, and uh, and uh, and actually and 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 tell them the truth about our struggle to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to rid ourselves of oppression. And uh, but it's an uphill battle because um, uh, let's see the. Uh, the educational system is making it harder to get the word out, so we don't have to organize ourselves to educate our people as to the truth of our history. And Brother Moses, speaking about the truth, Brother Moses, you talk about 
this recent scrubber that's going on around the reparation movement, and they are fighting there to try to get some kind of um, congressional investigation or commission to study again the question of reparations as it relates to African people here in the United States. Um, is this one of these issues just to keep up visit all about essence and not all about form and not about essence, Brother Moses? Why do we need another commission to investigate and talk about whether or not African people should should deserve reparations? What's your take on that? Well, it's a political issue that needs a lot of enlightenment around it. I mean, we have ignorance on all parts. Uh, as I was saying, there was uh, uh, Columbia, I believe, Prince Columbia, uh, President one. I, I can't remember. He was a black brother. Uh, uh, and he was arguing against reparations, and so you know, we have these intellectuals. Uh, we need education around the issue. Uh, I don't know if the the, the Congress is going to be able to carry out that role. Uh, um, they're not the sharpest knives in the drawers, or, uh, and uh, you know, but it is an issue that has come in. Been, been around and it's going to be around. Um, the Congressman, the Senator O'Connell, I believe it, I mean, the Speaker, uh, or the, or the, the head of the Senate, um, he's saying he's not even going to let it come up for any kind of discussion in the Senate. And uh, so the powers that be are digging in with, with white supremacy on top. And uh, you know, it's an uphill battle. Uh, uh, it, it, it's not, it's not, you know, uh, uh, popularized enough in the U.S. I don't think uh, most people are not uh, focusing on it, and uh, and but it is an issue that deserves to be in the forefront. Thank you. You know, panelists, I like to go y'all the way in when we talk about reparations. Uh, was not is this the correct approach? Many people argue the, 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 the approach that many people may um, take as it relates to how do you move from where we had to actually acquire some kind of compensation for the damages to African people, you know, based on you know centuries centuries of oppression. Now, in terms of when we talk about reparation, right now we are talking about now to do another commission, to do another research, to do another study. And sometimes, you know, we are presented with issues that have no really real substance, only just form. What I'm raising to you is that when we talk about reparations, one of the crucial questions that I have in mind is how do you come up with a formula? How do you come up with a process? How do you come up with a number that would justify the damages and harm that has been done to African people? Where do you start? when you come to address that particular question, panelists? Uh, it becomes uh, very complicated because um, you're talking about uh, nearly uh, 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 500 years of, uh, of um, we're close to 500 years of, uh, of uh, human trafficking and enslavement uh, uh, 
you know, and the, the ravages of uh, Jim Crow and, um, you know, and, and a lot of forms of oppression that have um, been uh, dished out to Africans uh, not, uh, uh, throughout the continent and the diaspora, not just the U.S., and uh and the thing about it though and out and in our state of uh, of um of uh disorganization even if we were given reparations say tomorrow uh the compensation would uh uh, uh would, would, you know would flow right back into the hands of the capitalists and uh what we and uh, really what we should be pushing for and uh, we're not organized uh, enough yet to do it, is to push for uh, repatriation and a cancellation of the so-called debt that Africa supposedly owes to the imperialists. Because uh, capitalism stole a lot more uh, from Africa than... uh, uh, than uh, than could ever be repaid. Hey, Brother Haki, what I see in this movement as relates to African people, I see tendencies of individuals trying to position themselves where they become the gatekeeper and the spokesperson for the masses of our people, where they'll be in a position to benefit maybe individually or whatever resources that may come this way. Now, I have a question uh, for those type of individuals And I'd like for you to respond to it Let's just say that They give you a financial amount of money For the so called damages That happened to uh, African people Let's say you have the money But With money What good is it If no one is not willing to sell you resources What's good? What good is it If no one is willing to want to do business with you what good is it? And I think the brother Jerry Ball, one of the professors out of uh, Morgan, you, uh, stated, the University of Morgan State University, I think they made a relevant point. At this point in time, the capitalist has brought up everything, even if you got the wealth to buy it, they're not going to sell it. So what good the money going to do us, brother Haki? Yeah, well, <coughs> but, excuse me, <coughs> my position is that, <coughs> excuse me, my my position is that if 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 you get the money, uh, it always can be used. I'm not. I would never n- dispute the point that uh, the capitalists, in in order to maintain power, uh, what they're going to do, they're simply not going to play ball, irrespective of the fact that you have the capital. So there is this tendency <clears throat> in terms of trying to block you, irrespective of the kind of wealth that you have. But having the wealth per se gives you the opportunity to invest in abroad to do things abroad, which you can't necessarily do in America. So I think that's very, very good. So any point in which we can weaken capitalism is a very, very good thing. So if that means investments, you know, you know, throughout the African world, the African diaspora, then that's a very good thing because it weakens, because it weakens uh, uh, global, uh, global capitalism. So that's a very, very good thing. So I don't worry too much about in terms of the strategies of the ruling class because they're going to do what they got to do. They're committed in terms of the impoverishment of African people. They're committed to that idea. And they're going to do what they have to do in order to succeed. We have to understand it. So strategically, we have to think beyond the borders of North America and start thinking about the broader African world in terms of using those resources, in terms of the empowerment of African people, in terms of undermining and diminish 
is the impact of imperialism. Uh, but one other thing, do, Brother Africa, I think that that you, the one thing you raised earlier in terms of you know, um, in terms of how you assess the value, you know, of um, of reparations. One of the things I think when you talk about we look at the wholesale death uh, of African labor in the society. If you look at if you if there's a dollar amount and you extrapolate and make that amount in terms of real terms, uh, what the value is today, then I give you some pretty good idea in terms of a monetary number that is probably closer to uh, what what is old African people given the historical uh, exploitation and uh, utilization of, you know, of uh, African labor. But it's, it's, but some extent I agree with Anthony that I think it's going to, it's going to undermine uh, you know, in its entirety, it's going to undermine, you know, objectively, the amount of damage uh, that they actually inflicted upon African people. Because one of the things you can't measure, you can't measure the kind of psychic damage that you've done to African people. That can't be measured. And we're not just talking about, you know, you know, talking you know, a couple hundred years ago. We're talking about right now. And when you look at something like Jim Crow in terms of the kind of um, systematic um, uh, eliminate African people, you know, for meaningful employment or certainly employment with, with making a fine, good salary. When we look at that kind of thing, uh, one can never underestimate the uh, the kind of um, uh, the kind of damage uh, that you have imposed economically because people were in a position to get the kind of money they need in terms of empowerment of their communities. So there is a very very complicated, a very convoluted uh, um, methodology you have to employ in terms of trying to assess what is old. But I think more importantly, I think what has to happen. That they have, they must admit that what they did was that was criminal. They have to admit that it was criminal. Well, a couple of states in Australia, when they when they when they uh, acknowledge the wrong they committed against the Aborigines, which was a very good first step. So America has to do the same thing. Now, Bill Clinton made a, a somewhat uh, um, uh, menial uh, 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 statement about you know the evils you know of, of uh, enslaved African people. But that wasn't backed by the power or the power of the United States. That was something that Bill Clinton arbitrarily, a statement that he arbitrarily made. Unilaterally, he made that statement. You need the government as a whole to acknowledge what it did was criminal. It was wrong. And if we're talking historical perspective, if we talk about something that happened in the past that stopped 100 years ago, then there'd be no question of reparations. But the problem in terms of the oppression of African people hasn't stopped. It continues. It hasn't stopped. And this is just taking different forms. And so, therefore, the question of reparation is just as valuable today as it was historically. So when we talk about reparation, keep in mind, so we have to understand that we're not talking historically. We're talking about contemporary, in contemporary sense. This stuff is still happening today. The, I mean, when you look at the social economic indicators in terms of the well-being of, of the citizenry, African people across the board continue to be adverse to impact, and that's despite the fact you talked about the increase in terms of, you know, Africans attending or graduating from colleges and universities with high degrees. So despite all of that, the social economic indicators haven't moved. So the question is, well, damn, you play by rules of the game, then why isn't that being reflected in terms of social economics, social economic indicators? Well, that's because you get this fundamental system in place which is geared toward across the board. The, uh, the the um, the the the, uh, the 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 undermining, you know, of African interests, and we have to understand that very very clearly. And if we don't understand that fundamental reality in terms of how the system works, then we keep on persisting and playing the same kind of game, expecting a different kind of result. And, that, and by definition, of course, you and I understand that's insanity. 
So we have to understand the nature of the beast, the nature of the ball game, and to the extent that we can utilize these funds, assuming they're going to provide funds for, for, for the historical wrongs committed against African people, assuming they're going to do that, then we certainly can use it. If not in the United States, we certainly can use it around the world in terms of empowerment of African people throughout the diaspora. And the last question on the reparation, we don't have to deal with it, but I would like to put it out there. I'm still wanting someone to find for me how do you value or define the value of of a life? What is the value of a personal life? How do you define that? What is the, how you put a price tag on that? So those are some questions I can understand where people need to uh, uh, take a serious look as we go down this road of trying to address how do we get compensating for the wrongs that have been done to us historically. But wait, panelists, what we're going to do is we're going to pause for this cause. When we come back, we have a a discussion on 72 police officers out of Philadelphia were put on leave as a result of using social media in terms of sharing among themselves how they're going to terrorize and kill, damage, and harm the African community. We had that discussion when we come back, because this is something that's going on in your world and your community. This is Africa on the Moon. We'll be right back.
Africa on the move. We're going to continue this segment on what's going on in your community and your world. And we left off with the idea that recently this past week or so that was reported in the media that at least 72 police officers out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was reported and were put on leave and probably were paid for using social media as a tool to talk about how they will continue to harass, terrorize, and beat up people in the African community. Since then, there has been, there have been investigations in other police departments around the country to see if there is other behaviors within the police force in other states that, that have displayed this kind of attitude toward the African community. Panelists, what can you draw and make out of, of, of this incident? What can you draw from this? Uh, Brother Anthony, start us off. Certainly. Um, well, Philadelphia in particular has a long history of uh, racism within its police department. Uh, as a matter of fact, Philadelphia is one of uh, only two cities I can think of in which uh, a, a bomb was dropped on the African community in order in order to uh, in order to terrorize uh, uh, you know Africans and to eliminate uh, you know their political opponents. And uh, the other uh, the other uh, case I can think that that comes to mind is Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in the uh, early 1920s. But uh, uh, but I mean uh, uh, the, uh, uh, this is a, a horrendous. But given Philadelphia's history and in terms of uh, the adverse relationships that uh, that the police has with the African community in Philadelphia, not totally surprising. And uh, this probably exists in several cities throughout the U.S., uh, uh, particularly uh, cities that, would, that, that have a heavy concentration of Africans. Um and uh, uh, and uh, you know, and the uh, the, the increase uh, reporting of um, of uh, police brutality and incidents in which Africans are being killed by police, uh, you know, to an excessive degree, uh, indicates that, uh, that 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 this is a very pervasive problem. And it's uh, and it's a, a microcosm of the larger society, and it's a, rem- a grim reminder that Africans are at war, uh, you, you, uh, you know, in this society, and uh, it's not understood, and it's largely one-sided because we are a disorganized people, and our enemies are well aware of this. Brother Moses, what you make of this behavior? of the police force in Philadelphia and how it has been dealt with in terms of suspension, and I'm not mistaken, probably with pay, because many times when things are under investigation, they still pay them and tell them they will have to take a leave of absence. But what do you just make up the nature that this can come publicly, this can come public 
that they display this kind of distastefulness toward the African community as so-called civil servants, Brother Moses. While we wait for Brother Moses, we go to Brother Haki. You'll respond, Brother Haki. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, let me just say, Brother Africa, you know, I, I don't know why, I don't think anybody should be surprised at those findings in Philadelphia. Uh, police organizations generally attract the most conservative, the most traditional people. And this is important to underscore tradition, because when we talk about tradition and we talk about the relationship of African people in American society, then you've got to understand that essentially it's one of antagonism, where those, these people in positions of power have always used uh, African people as scapegoats to all the problems that permeate society. And doing so, African people have always been painted as second-class citizens. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the kind of vitriol, the kind of hatred toward African people is prevalent among the Philadelphia police. Now, we talk about 72 people, but, but you can, the problem is that one of the things when we talk about, you know, uh, you know change when it comes to police, police organization, it's a very difficult thing to do because one of the things that they first can do is they create a, 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 a myriad of bureaucracy in terms of making it almost damn impossible to actually get rid of those people. And so I don't think that anything's going to happen to those 72. Part of what's going to happen, they'll probably get reprimanded, and that's about it. But in terms of fire being fired or to criminal charges, anything of that nature, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think uh, these police officers are too well insulated. And keep in mind, one of the ironies in terms of these you know, police organizations is that one of the things is that, uh, and, and I find it extremely ironic, is that, there's the belief among police officials that you can't be too intelligent to be a police officer. I find that ironic that it seems to me as an organization that you want intelligent people because the more intelligent people are, the more they're in a position to, to appropriately interact with the community in which to, when in the process, you know, uh, gaining more respect from the community in terms of their ability to conduct themselves. But that's not what they want. They want the, 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 the kind of roughnecks, the kind of thugs, the kind of I beat them up, I shoot them up, you know, kind of mentality uh, in terms of uh, in terms of, uh, of the proper uh, the proper mindset in terms of keeping African people in line. So I, I think it's a very 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 problem. And and one of them one last thing before I conclude, brother Africa, I'm I'm, I'm reminded the fact that George Bruce Wright wrote a book called Black 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 Justice Black Robes White Justice. And in the book, they historically the police department always used 38s, but they switched to 1945s and 60s. And it, the, the feeling being that the 45 could penetrate the hide of African people better. In other words, we can kill, we can kill African people more effectively with a 45 as opposed to a 38. So it's amazing that the law enforcement actually concurred across the state now, across, across, the, across the country, actually concurred with that, that notion that somehow that it, it, could, it, it could somehow breach the hide of Af- the bullet could breach the, a 45 bullet could breach the hide of African people, characterizing African people as some kind of animal. So clearly, you know, Brother Africa, you know, I'm not surprised at all in terms of this kind of mindset. And, and, and keep in mind, the system wants those kind of people in positions of power. They're going to make sure that those kind of people get those jobs. That's precisely what they want. Those people whose mindset is in deference to those positions of power will do whatever the system tells them to do. If the system tells these people to eliminate, to eradicate, to kill off hundreds or thousands of people at a time, they will do it without a second thought. And this is the kind of people that you want as police officers. It's not to say that you don't have some who are extremely, some who are intelligent, some who do understand the reality in terms of what's going on. Those who do the best they can within, um, within the, the, um, 
uh, neuroparameters to actually impact these communities in terms in these police office, these police organizations in terms of trying to get them, you know, to you know to serve the community in a more appropriate kind of way. Uh, one of the things we talk about, Terry Albury, the former uh, black FBI agent. One of the things that he did, he took upon himself to try to get the FBI to address the racism in the FBI and to get them to take a look at the policies that adversely impact the African community for no reason other than racism. Well, of course, Terry Albury had to go. They set, you know, he had to go. They set him up. As a consequence, he ended up getting three years in prison for simply trying to reform the FBI. So the racism in, in, in law enforcement is very deep. It's very, very intrinsic and, very, and it's very intense. So uh, I don't think anything's going to happen to those 72 officers in Philadelphia. In fact, uh, if anything, the level of racism in the Philadelphia police officers will actually um, uh, increase. That's my position, Brother African. I close with that. And do we have Brother Moses back? Uh, you with us, Brother Moses? Uh, thank you. Yes. Uh, okay, yo, response okay. to that phenomenon in Philadelphia and the police force using social media as a means to display their hatred and their attitude towards the African community. Yeah, it's unfortunate that this day and age of the 21st century, we still have bigotry and racism, and uh, especially entrenched in the in the society and institutions, in the economy, uh, the police in particular, who are supposed to be the thin blue line between anarchy and civilization. And these are the people who are, who are supposed to be serving and protecting them, and they are so biased. It's a shame. Uh, it's a downright shame. Uh, uh, we need a new system. We need a, a new government, a new, a new party in power that that's uh, sensitive to the needs of world poor working people. Uh, that's the bottom line. We need a, a revolution. That, uh, 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 we need a whole change of attitude and, and our viewpoints. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, we're going to have a real brief station break, and when we come back, we're going to make our transition to the segment of This Is Your Future Without Resistance. We're going to talk about some really interesting articles that are going to speak to the theme, This Is Your Future Without Resistance. When we come back, panelists, I'd like for you to talk about um, this article that was titled How the For-Profit Prison Industry Keep 460,000 Innocent People in Jail Every Day. By Luke Darby, GQ. This was for ISN on May May 24, 2019. We will talk about that particular article. Again, this is your future without resistance. We're going to do this in about two minutes. You got to listen to Africa on the Move. Oh, God. 
Cause if you come from Clarendon And if you come from Portland And if you come from Westmoreland You're an African So don't care where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind your nationality Have got the identity of an African Cause if you come from Trinidad And if you come from people of color because very often uh, the bail amount is set so high uh, that the uh, that 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 the person cannot afford to pay it and uh, they uh, they get uh, uh, now that they get a, a bond financing called a bond in order to pay that but 
the interest rate is uh, is very high, and uh, and as and and as a result, there are a lot of uh, people that are in jail because they cannot meet their uh, the amount of their bail, which seems to be uh, arbitrarily uh, 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 set by, uh, by 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 the judge. You know, Brother Hackey, I thought it would be interesting when you read his article. You look at the memory, the, the small nature of so-called crimes that were committed in relationship to the type of um, jail sentences that has been levied out. Uh, it talks about people spending time in prison just over this whole question of maybe taking a, a backpack. You're talking about people, you know, um, $75. I mean, these things are so so small, minute, but yet they treat them like these so-called serious criminals. What kind of message is that sending to, sending to the public in general and our communities in particular? Very, very good question, Brother Africa. Uh, we have to understand, when we talk about, when we talk about um, this incarcerating a large number of people, we have to under, we can't underscore enough the whole the whole question around social control. Uh, one of the things it does from a psychological point of view, when you lock up all these people, what you're doing in, in effect is creating a scenario which says those people against us. So you're creating this 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 this, this, this erroneous status of a people of a people, uh, which says that these people who are incarcerated are somehow not like us. That in fact they they are the problem of society. And so, therefore, their incarceration is justifiable, irrespective of the circumstances. So they do it for social control. And it's interesting, when you, when you look at the history in terms of this whole process, in terms of locking up poor people, uh, you know, and, and denying them bail, it has a long history, it has long roots in the Western world. Uh, one of the things, and, and most people don't realize this, but back in 1978 to 1868, one of the things that uh, the, the, the British government did was they took a lot of those people, quote-unquote, who were criminals, uh, well, keep in mind, initially they, they, they sent them to America. In fact, Georgia, the state of Georgia, was a, a penal colony for a very, very long time. Uh, ultimately, eventually they started shipping their, their, their criminal, those people who were charged with criminal offenses, they shipped them to, to Australia. They made New Zealand a penal colony. Now, it's interesting that uh, those people that they shipped, those people who, quote, unquote, were criminals, were people who did the things like, you know, petty, petty theft, uh, spitting in the street, uh, being loud, obnoxious, or even you know, or even uh, things like uh, political prisoners. Those people they deemed they deemed uh, criminal because at that time it was important for the government to establish that these people were somehow the problem, as opposed to getting people to understand the problem wasn't these people who they perceived as criminals. The problem was a system that in fact was criminal that created these people who who were getting incarcerated. So it's a social control. It's something that they, they have long roots in terms of you know, uh, Western uh, way in terms of dealing with things. And keep in mind, in the context of the capitalist system, you've got to have this mass incarceration because without the social, without the social control, then, you know, people are, people are free to express their discontent with where things are. And one thing you don't want is people freely expressing their discontent. So therefore, what you do, you intimidate people, you lock them up. And there's a book by Anthony Vander, which is a very good book, and I recommend everybody read this book. It's called Bound with an Iron Chain. It is a very good book if you're interested in terms of in terms of these inadequacies when it comes to criminal justice. Very, very important to read that book. 
Uh, but second thing, Brother Africa, I think also in terms of locking people, these, all these poor people up, I think it's the political dimension, of the economic dimension. And that is mainly that, you know, listen, in order for these locales, these cities and the counties, you know, to in metropolitan areas to receive money, they got to demonstrate to the federal government that, in fact, they're doing their job. In other words, they got to demonstrate to the federal government that we're doing a good job of locking up our citizenry. But the federal government sees an interest in terms of locking up the citizenry because, again, it keeps people away from the reality in terms of how criminal society, how criminal system is. Because as long as you lock people up, then that's a tendency to escape with the people who are incarcerated, as opposed to understanding the system that is fundamentally criminal in terms of its dispensation, in terms of how it goes about dealing with people, uh, with dealing with humanity. So clearly, I think from a social and political perspective, I think that unlocking up large support people, irrespective of the fixed conditions, irrespective of the kind of crime they commit, quote unquote, the kind of crime they commit, irrespective of that. Uh, they have a compelling interest to do so, simply because of further, further the interest of the system. And this is what we have to understand when we look at all these innocent people being being locked up. And it's ironic that in society we say, in America we say that, you know, innocent are proven guilty, that you got all these innocent people who are locked up who have been proved of anything. And put the, the add, uh, the, the, the superimposed upon that is a situation where you got, well, given the fact that these people you know, have all this, this time in jail and, and, they're, and they're, hopeless, they're hopeless and they're feeling depressed, that they're vulnerable to all kind of manipulation. So the guys who come to them and say, listen, if you want to get out, if you commit to this crime, we'll let you out. Of course, the likelihood is the guy is going to commit that he did the crime because he wants to get out. In some cases, they actually let them out. In other cases, they say, okay, we got your confession. Now we'll keep you even longer period of time. So clearly it's a criminal system, and, and until we understand that fundamental reality, we continue to play this game where, you know, we, 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 um, we, 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 we castigate. And uh, we belittle uh, these people who are quote-unquote criminals without understanding that these people are a product of a criminal system that in the first place created them, not only just created them, but to a large extent um, uh, made their actions almost inevitable when you give the fact when you talk about a lack of access to resources, that what do you do in terms of, in terms of your survival if you've got a state which says that you don't have a fundamental right to exist? Well, you got, as a human being, you're going to do what you got to do to survive, and that's just a fundamental reality. So until you have a system with understanding fundamental reality, uh, you're going to have criminal activity. But the mere fact that people are, are, are having per, 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 having persist in any kind of criminal activity, but yet they're locked up, even though they should be guilty free until until guilty, speaks values in terms of just how criminal the system really is, Brother Africa. You know, Brother Moses, where's the humanity of these individuals that are running the system? When you read the statement, Brother Moses, I just would like for you to speak from your heart uh, what came to your mind when you read the statement that in San Francisco, Kenny Humphrey spent a year in jail awaiting trial while his, while his bail was set at $350,000 for allegedly stealing $5 and a bottle of cologne. 2017. Brother Moses. Yes, the, um, the article points to several examples of people who are being unjustly incarcerated. That was one. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, the the system is a is a for-profit system, and 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 is a. Uh, just circulates people in and out of the the, the jail cells uh, at just a 
unjustly and and basically at a profit rate. Uh, they're benefiting from these people uh, uh, paying these bails and, and fans and and being incarcerated and forced to work. Uh, this system is long overdue for for overhaul. Uh, She starts out with Jennifer Garnerman detailed the story of Khalif Browder, a 16-year-old from the Bronx, who was imprisoned in Rikers Island for three years, two of them in solitary confinement because he couldn't afford his $3,000 bill. You know, that was that was the person who stole the backpack. It's alleged he stole the backpack. And so, you know, there there's glaring, glaring uh, discrepancies in Inequities. Uh, 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 once you're in the prison system, they have a way of making money off you for phone calls and 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 different uh, amenities. You know, you need soap and toothpaste and different things. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's all geared geared towards keeping you there and uh, and and benefiting from your your unfortunate situation, uh, your inability to raise $3,000 for bail or, or even less than that in some cases. Uh, uh, it's, it's a deplorable situation. I, I don't know how to best explain it. Uh, uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. You know, Brother Anthony, uh, one of the things that may need to be taken out of this equation is giving the judges too much power to choose or release the, the accused as well as if they should do jail. And we can say this because recently it has been discovered that many judges have self-interest in ensuring that people go to jail, even to particular jails where they have invested in when we talk about these private prisoners. So I just would like for you to speak to this question of taking away the power of the judges to have too much latitude to choose whether or not one should stay in jail or be released prior before a court hearing. Your response to that? Yeah, I think they get I think they're giving way too much latitude and the bail system and one of the things I, 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 I took away from this article is that there, that there is a movement underway to abolish the cash bail system. But, uh, and, uh, but that would probably happen with the, with the collapse of capitalism because there are too many banks that make profits off of the uh, – make, make a, a huge profit off of the uh, cash bail system. And uh, and uh, and uh, you know and and uh, and anything that to, to get rid of the cash bail system would be a help to the people that are victims of uh, you know the uh, uh, the criminal uh, injustice system and uh, taking away the judge's uh, latitude in terms of setting cash bail would would also be another step in the right direction. But ultimately, uh, but uh, but an even better approach would be to get rid of the system altogether, 
And there's only one other country that has it, and that's the Philippines. And it's interesting that the Philippines has a cash bail system because that that, uh, that was a U.S. colony uh, for, for nearly 50 years. And uh, so it's interesting that they have a cash bail system also. But uh, pro- probably nowhere near as corrupt as what, what exists inside the U.S. Again, Brother Haki, you talk a lot about criminalizing the poor. I think a good example that comes out from this article is where they make the statement that out of a thousand dollars bill set, over eighty percent of the people didn't have enough money or couldn't afford even that relatively low amount of money. Um, coming to that reality, what does that say? Yeah. Well, well, the the, the poorest idea because it's, 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 the system understands that the poor is a building in terms of having adequate resources in terms of, you know, getting out, getting out of jail in the first place is compromised. And so, therefore, they're perfect targets in terms of law enforcement because they are they're, they're essentially powerless. Uh, and that's unfortunate because when you look at there's a real, you know, Brother Africa, there's a real disparity in terms of a real dichotomy when it comes to the treatment of poor folks versus wealthy people. Now, the real criminals, we're talking about people who have means, people who have status, people who have power, real criminals who routinely enact policies, who uh, uh, who do, do things, you know, economically, which literally kills tens of thousands of people, uh, who, when caught, uh, often make bail, who don't see a date inside of jail. So clearly, in terms of if they really were concerned in terms of combating criminality, then what you see to me, it makes more sense that you, if, if you're going to combat criminality, and you go after the, the wealthy, wealthy super criminals. But they don't, because the wealthy super criminals are, in fact, they're uh, protected. Uh, they're part of the system. Uh, they, 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 you know, they know the players, and so therefore they don't go to jail. You know, recently in Philadelphia, they caught, uh, they, they discovered um, um, 16, I think, 16.5 tons of cocaine on a ship. Now, of course, the question is, who owns the ship? Who has the kind of organizational strength, you know, to, 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 to to bring on a ship 16.5 tons of cocaine without being without being caught, without being uh, observed. Who can do that other than the powerful? So clearly, even if they catch the individual, wealthy individual responsible for that transshipment of cocaine, they'll do no real time. Uh, they'll lock them up. They'll make bail. They'll be out. And if they do any time, they'll get, if they, if they, maybe they'll get a year or two in prison effect. Most of the times, they end up getting off. So clearly, this is disparity is this kind of a treatment of, of poor people in terms of this whole whole bail process. It's one which is which is which again which is which is which is designed in terms of ensuring, you know, to to keep you know poor people in this place. Uh, there's a notion that um, that you know, there's fear that poor people at some point are going to come to the realization that they're being screwed, uh, that uh, this injustice that they're inflicted on daily. Will never come about until you have a fundamental destruction of this capitalist system. Uh, there's a real fear that poor people will come to understand their fundamental reality. Uh, so therefore, just the whole notion in terms of locking up people becomes indispensable. So this is this is the situation to, uh, that we find ourselves um, pervading. Uh, this kind of this kind of uh, uh, this kind of criminal this kind of criminality being legitimized by a system which is in itself criminal. You know, Brother Anthony, we talk about our theme, this is your future. In reality, we can say this is your reality for many of our people in regards to one of the impacts 
that this cash bail policy has on our families and our communities is that it, it, it destroys it in terms of, one, if you go to jail and you stay in there one, two, three days or less, many times people are losing their jobs. And when you lose your jobs, what that what happens? It creates the possibility of going homelessness. It creates the possibility that, you know, your, your family cannot feed your family. It creates all kinds of problems. And I maintain, again, this is another form of, of, of Jim Crow. Jim Crow never dies and it changes form. Your response to the damages that these this policy has caused many families within our communities as well. And this is not the future. This is what's going on today, Brother Anthony. Your response? Uh, I agree with you well, co- uh, completely. I mean, uh, I mean the inability to uh, 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 if if, if uh, someone is unable to meet cash bail and they cannot, uh, uh, you know, get a bond or, or what or what have you, and they spend any time in jail, they could uh, jeopardize their job. Ultimately, and it, it you know it, it, it causes the breakup of families, and also and 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 it creates uh, you know single uh, a lot uh, single parent households, and uh, and uh, you know so so it creates a myriad of problems, uh, you know uh, 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 you know that have been around for decades. And you can see the effects, uh, you know, you know, in our communities. I mean, uh, you, you know, because uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, imbalance, despair, and inadequate guidance, you know, for the youth, and uh, and it creates uh, suffering for the, uh, for, uh, uh, you know, for the masses of our people. And uh, and uh, this is going to intensify as the crisis of capitalism gets worse, and uh, you know, and that, and that, and as uh, the privatization of prisons continues, because uh, if the, if it continues, and they, and they are, and and, it, and they are more prisons being built, in order for them to turn a profit. You have to have people to put in them, and uh, and uh, you know, and and until we get sufficiently politically educated and organized enough, uh, you know, to put a stop to it, it's going to continue. And you're right; it's not the future; it is the present. You know, brother Haki and brother uh, Moses. Uh, many times we ask ourselves who are our enemy and who are our friends. And sometimes it's very hard to figure that out because, you know, when you deal with systems and when you deal with institutions, there seems to be lack of accountability. Now, we know this problem is very difficult to overcome because of one of these, because because of this fact and this reality. Based upon bond companies typically look like moms and pop operations, but the majority of them are owned by one of nine insurance companies. And the industry as a whole Rakes between 1.4 and 2.4 billion dollars a year. Those are the real criminals. Those are the people we need to look at. Most people don't understand even the concept of insurance, how they evolved and was created. 
the history of the concept of insurance came about as a result of the institution of slavery. It came out in Chicago as, as they enslaved us. And they continued to follow the same pattern. Who are these nine companies that serve an interest to make sure that our people are kept in these dungeons? Your response, Brother Haki, and then Brother Moses. Yeah, uh, well, I, I think I think you uh, you know I I I I think you're right. It's important that we look beyond the surface. Uh, one of the things uh, you know uh, there is this great propensity among the populace, you know, not to want to read. And the system has done a very good job of programming, conditioning people not to read. Uh, people prefer to be entertained. And of course, when you entertain, you never get the the the, the, the essence in terms of what's really going on. So when you talk about the fact that the kind of control that the insurance companies execute behind the scene, it's important that we understand that. Uh, and it's a fundamental when we, when we talk about this in terms of the disparity in terms of the whole bail process, then we have to understand the reality is that we're talking about a system. And unless that system goes, then realistically speaking, the bail, the bail, the bail, the bail, uh, the whole bail process isn't going anywhere. It will always be with us. So, but it's incumbent upon people to understand in terms of, you know, behind the scenes, the kind of maneuvering that goes on, and understand that what they tell you, if they if they tell you, always look behind the scene to assess, ascertain exactly what's going on. But the truth is always behind the scene. Nothing is nothing is is is, is uh nothing is, is is spoken pervadum. It's always expressed in a way in terms of so as to confuse people, so as to conceal the reality in terms of what's going on. So once you discipline yourself and say, listen, we're able to say something like, uh, uh, let's say, for example, if they talk about uh, bail reform, then immediately what you have to do is, okay, bail reform. Now let me see what I can find out about bail reform and what that really means. And once you understand what bail reform really means and you understand some kind of, the kind of machination, the kind of game playing that goes on behind the scene in terms of why it's so difficult to liquidate or to get rid of you know, this whole process in terms of bail. So you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. There is a prob- uh, that is a problem. It's a game that they play. It's a game they perpetuate. And the populace uh, here, not only in America, but throughout the world, uh, have become knowledgeable in terms of, you know, the kind of double speak uh, utilized by the elite for the sole purpose of obscuring the reality in terms of what's really going on. Your response, Brother Moses, to the road that insurance uh, Like you said, there were the nine companies uh, – that rake it in at 1.4 to 2.4 billion a year, a million, million, um, billion a year, 1.4 to 2.4 billion a year, and, and we need to we need to find out who these companies are, and so we need to put a face on them. Um, um, the system is the system, and. Uh, the system won't change uh, until, you know, probably capitalism changes. And that, without that, that won't happen without organization and politicization of the populace. And uh, we have a lot of work cut out for us. Uh, uh, you know, this, this, this for-profit uh, um Basically, everything is a commodity, and everything is for sale. And and your your freedom is for sale. Your 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 
your ability to stay out of jail is dependent upon your ability to pay cash and and uh, uh that's just to put off the put off the the jailing and the the court case and the sentences that's just to put it off until you can you can get you can be out of jail uh and it, and you're supposedly innocent until proven guilty, but it seems like you're guilty uh the way you have to pay. Uh, it's a it's a crime, uh, and we need to abolish this system. Uh, uh, thank you. Definitely, there needs to be a stop on future private prisons. But, panelists, in terms of this is your future without resistance, I think it best be summed up in this last paragraph. If our listening audience may have not had a chance to see this article, I will share with you the last paragraph and want you to think about the points that have been made. In this paragraph, it states, the progress that is happening is happening slowly. Meanwhile, every year, hundreds of thousands of people who haven't been convicted of anything are are stuck in the cycle, losing their homes and jobs, straining their family resources. Some organizations are trying to lessen the burden while the law catches up. But as long as taxpayer represent a billion-dollar industry, the executives profiting off of this vulnerable will pour money into the fight to keep it alive. The human suffering is just the cost of doing business to them. Final thoughts, panelists, from this article. Then we'll take, call, take a station break. Final thoughts. Yes, uh, we got um, uh, people have to we, we have to politically, politically educate and organize ourselves and uh, and, uh, you know, and get organized so that we could actually put an end to this uh, 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 to this uh, type of uh, exploitation, because that's all it is. It's exploitation of those people who do not have the resources uh to to uh to, to to fight uh the uh you know the 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 justice system for a fair trial well in a, in a, in a nutshell brother africa i think that um your your statement sort of your, the statement that you read underscores the kind of indifference to human life that's so prominent in terms of capitalist systems uh you know we 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 can't we can't stress enough in terms of what people would do, or what is certainly justifiable, in terms of a suit of dollars. Uh, and so, unless humanity gets to a point, and I think we're moving in that direction, where they begin to understand that human life is much more precious uh, than someone's right to make money. Uh, so, until we get to that point, there'll be individuals who are totally insensitive, uh, totally in, uncaring, in terms of the plight of people, as long as there's a dollar to be made. So it's sad, but it's true. And what I find real ironic is that you got these right wingers who are trying to justify the savagery. In fact, there's a book by Max Blumenthal. Um, uh, it was a very good book. I think it's entitled "Savage Inequalities" or "Savage um, Savage Organization" or something like that. But anything is a very good book. Um, but I think people should read that book um, because it pretty much underscores, in terms of the mindset, in terms of the willingness to to, to engage in destructiveness as long as there's money to be made. And so I think as a human being, 
we really have to stop and look at in terms of the kind of things we do. And if, in fact, we're comfortable in terms of destroying people in terms of pursuit of, of, of money. So I think that until that mindset is, is, is eliminated, uh, we can expect uh, more of the same in terms of bail question. You are listening to Africa on the Move. If you have any comments or questions as we discuss these issues, please feel free to call 323-679-0841 and hit 1. We have just create, critiqued this article, How the For-Profit Prison and Industry Keep 460,000 Innocent People in Jail Every Day. It was published on the 24th of May on the RSN by Luke WGQ. So, audience, please check it out because remember, this is your future without any resistance. Right now, we will continue the discussion, but we're going to pause for the calls, take a station break, and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Yeah. 
back to Africa on the Move. Brother Peter's correct. We need equal rights and justice. We'll get to peace later. Welcome back. We will continue our discussion on the theme, This is Your Future Without Resistance. Palace, this article titled Danville Prison Remove 200 books from library, mostly about the black experience in the USA. When you talk about this whole question of the prison system and prison reform and we want people to improve themselves, what could be the motivation for a prison for a prison to move 200 books from their particular institution that's geared towards making the inmates more knowledgeable, more responsible, and better citizens. Give me a critique of their rationale, Brother Hackey. Yeah, I, I think the most obvious is that if, if they become enlightened, they become educated, then one thing for sure, the prison industrial complex will lose money because it's not like they will be back. They begin to understand how the system functions, understand their role in that system, and so therefore understand the choices they make does impact, you know, on, on their communities. So I think if, from a monitor standpoint, they don't want to see educated uh, prisoners, certainly prisoners become educated in the prison justice uh, system. Also, there's also fear that once they become enlightened, then they, in terms of actually addressing a lot of the ills of the penal, of the penal system, uh, there's a feeling that they would organize inside those prisons to bring about a fundamental change in terms of how business is done. Uh, so we understand the kind of dehumanization that takes place in those prisons. So if you've got an enlightened mass of prisoners, then it's more likely they will band together to put an end to that dehumanization. So I think for those reasons, they probably adamantly oppose to any kind of books that's going to uh, enhance those prisoners' self-esteem, their, their understanding of the world, or uh, knowledge generally. Okay. Brother Anthony, and after Brother Anthony, we'll take a caller. We have a caller line to be waiting patiently. Brother Anthony, your response to this whole question of, removing 200 books from the prison system that has been enlightened um, so-called inmates and, and helping them become a better, a better person? Well, with the privatization of prisons, unfortunately, uh, you ha- uh, uh, it, it only makes a profit if people are, are, are in there. And if, uh, and if prisoners become enlightened and become organized and educated, and start fighting against the system, then uh, then, then 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 that de- that defeats uh, uh, the purpose of uh, the privatized prison, which is to turn a profit, and uh, and that and that leads to um, you know, and they don't want people, they don't want especially Africans to become enlightened and uh, you know and and, and productive. Because then that 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 then that, that then that, that they break out of that slave mentality. So I think this by design removing books that that would give shed light on the African experience in the U.S. Okay, let's take this caller. Caller, your last four numbers are seven two four four seven two four four. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Your question or comment, caller? Yes, seven two Peace and black African power, Chief Brother Lee, uh, in the panel. How you doing, my brother? Uh, I'm doing doing just fine. Um, I think this discussion is is a one that that kind of segues in 
to the realization of a lot of the the sprouting of the Juneteenth celebrations. And um, I had to speak at a Juneteenth celebration on yesterday. And when we actually realized, even looking at the title of the show and, you know, uh, coupling that with this actual segment that you're speaking about now in this article, is a one, you know, when we're talking about current placement where we are as black people, and there was this um, this 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 special PBS special. It's called Slavery by Another Name. So you know, a lot of times when PBS gets a hold of an idea or a concept, you know, it has to be rooted in some 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 form of fact or you know some form of education. So when we when we talk about us as black people still being in slave like conditions, this being the atmosphere fitting to produce slaves, this is a hundred percent right. Um, I want to open up the door uh, a little bit further because even as you guys were talking about why the books would be taken out of the prison system. Um, that would encourage the majority of the population, which we know is the majority of us that are black that are in that in, you know in that system. So rather than reform, you know I'm I'm convinced because like I said, as you guys were speaking, I'm wondering when we kill each other in the prison system, if they get because I'm I'm pretty sure they have insurance out or insurances out on the inmates. But I'm pretty sure they probably get some type of kickback or they get some type of uh some type of pay, even if, you know, we're animals or savages amongst each other and we kill each other. I'm pretty sure they still win in some some sort of a way. But I think this opens up the conversation of what is going on. Why is tax dollars being put into more so of the prison industrial complex than education right this is this is going on at the same time right we do know that they invest more money into making and producing manufacturing the criminals that they quote unquote despise why because they know we know there's a lot of uh free labor these brothers um and I'm you know friends with a lot of even with relatives they go in the jail, federal prison, state penitentiary. They make sometimes twenty-five cents an hour, and a lot of times these are jobs that you know you may have mechanics, you may have you know other people out here in the quote-unquote real world. They're making you know a uh, hundred times that. So of course they find a, a, a benefit on even encouraging our young children rather than the importance of lifting up a book. Or promoting that type of uh, agenda, there is it's more open that even on BET, that we're promoting the lifestyle of the drug dealer. Even with Jay Z, we are applauding Jay Z, and that's great. But Jay Z's start was the one where he was on 60 Minutes, and he, you know, basically promoted his success in selling drugs to the community. And if it had not been for selling drugs, he might not have made it to where you we where we are seeing him now. So they're promoting a can do with this criminal man mentality. You understand? 
And this is far away from the respectable, the commendable, the responsible man that we need to be talking about, that we need in our communities. And I think this is definitely fitting for the agenda that they want to bring forth. And even when you look at COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO is set out to basically accommodate the same agenda, to, to basically make sure there is no rise of a black messiah or of what we saw in a lot of the freedom fighters or the liberating black voices. They want to make sure that we were going to be docile, we want to be savages, we're going to be just slaves and consumers, you know, feeding this economy. So when we look at it, it is definitely a bigger picture that oftentimes trinkle out, trinkles out even into the real world. You know, call it. I'm in agreement in terms of your, your, your position, and I would just like to add this point to your position. For most people who don't realize when you're talking about private prisoners, when you investigate and see who are the owners and who are the investors of the private prisoners, you'll find the judges, prosecutors, right. and bondholders. They are the major ones right. who invest in those institutions, which means they benefit to make sure they use the law in a, in a way where they incarcerate their people. And it's the same right. pattern that follows doctors. When you look at it, most people don't realize, you know, 85% of most of the people who take dialysis are Africans, but we only make up 12% of the, of the population. Now, when you look at who owns the dialysis um, um, centers, they're owned by many doctors, and the doctors screenline their patients to these centers so they can make money off it. They know that most of the medicines that we take, it gives towards shutting your kidneys down. So all of this is a game. The game is tools of oppression they use against us, and we need to become conscious. But, Carla, what I want you, what I want you to do, you can stay on the line. Let me go to my next panelist and get his thoughts on it. Brother Moses, your take. Yeah, this um, prison, the books, our books are empowering third world people of color and uh, black people in uh it's empowering them, and, and so obviously this is against against what's what's uh, necessary for to keep them docile and, and subservient, and uh, and so they get rid of the books. Uh, uh, it's a shame, uh, you know. Uh, again, you know, we we see a situation where uh, uh, freedom and expression is the commodity, you know. That is being manipulated by the system, man. and we're we're faced with the same old problems over and over again. Uh, uh, the, the white supremacy and and uh, keeping black people in their place. Thank you. And to my panelists and the guests that just joined us, I would like to get each one of y'all response to this narrative. You know, it's often stated that the enemy has stated that once he has found something successful, he never gives that up. He continues to do that as long as you know it has been successful. And this 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 decision to take books out of prisons is a reminder of the foundation of what this country was based upon. They never brought African people in this country over here to want us to read and write. And this, to me, is a continue of this legacy. Panelists, your response to the narrative. Side with you, Brother Haki. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, I, I think that we can't divorce what's happening from the history. And you're absolutely correct. When we talk about in terms of um, desire uh, to keep African people ignorant, uh, it's very much a fact that they as well as 
in 1655. In, uh, in uh, so, but one of the things the brother talked about, he raised some very cogent points, but I think that the question around the ensuring of the inmates in terms of when they kill each other, they prosper. Well, I know corporations do that. Uh, I haven't been able to assess whether or not they do it in the prison system. But my guess is, I have a single suspicion, is that a lot of these private facilities actually do that. And one of the things when we talk about brothers, you know, and brothers and sisters who are locked up in the, in, in, who have access to information, one of the things is the more information they have, that, which tends to impact their self-esteem, one of the things to begin to understand is that preying on your brother or your sister doesn't make you a man. So I think that in itself would, would greatly reduce the kind of violence, the kind of, um, uh, the kind of struggles that take place in prison on a daily basis. So I think for that reason alone, uh, the, the powers that be are very resident, or hesitant rather, to uh, actually um, have a situation where uh, this kind of material is freely available to the masses of people who find themselves incarcerated. So I think that the, the points that the brother made are very, very cogent points, and um, I agree with him wholeheartedly. Okay, Brother Anthony, your point, you next. Yes, um, I concur with uh, uh, with, with the, the the points been made so far, and would add that uh, that that very early in our history, uh, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, uh, a- Africans realized the value of education, and uh, that's why it was denied to us for the most part. But if you look at the history of uh, the progressive political leadership that we produced, uh, they were largely self-educated for the most part, and they had, had access to literature. And uh, and they and, and once they uh, they obtained that, they used that to try to help uh, uh, the, the uh, you know to help liberate our people. Uh, let's see, a couple examples that come to mind are Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and, Fred, and Frederick Douglass. They didn't have uh, much formal education, but what, what little education they did have, they were able to use it as a tool uh, to, uh, to try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, liberate our people. And I think, uh, you know, our enemies fear that. And that's why there is uh, there's this denial of access to any uh, progressive uh, literature that could uplift, uh, 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 you know, Africans, and also why there is a discouragement in the media in terms of things of an academic nature. I mean, we have that same ability uh, to excel in that that we do in anything else we take an entrance in. But, when, but but that is not encouraged among our youth, and and that's by design, and that's something that we have to uh, organize to put an end to. And brother Moses, your thought on, on this issue of the importance of this is a continued legacy, a U.S. legacy of making sure that our people don't. Don't be put in a position where we can read or write. Yeah, this has always been, a, I mean, been a crime. It was literally a crime to to help uh, slaves read or write. Uh, it was instituted and put into law. Um, you know, this this 
this situation of keeping uh, the oppressed and exploited uh, ignorant uh, so that they don't see the source of their problem. And, uh, and so this is a long-standing standing, uh, operating procedure within the U.S. and, and the U.S. Uh, ruling class circles. And uh, it's nothing new. It continues today in the prisons. Thank you. Okay, panelists, we're going to take this final break for tonight, and when we come back, we want to get your final thoughts and any announcements that you would like to make. We've been discussing This Is Your Future, Without Resistance. We want to try to raise the consciousness and the conscience of our people to let you know what the future may look like. This is what your future may look like. And for many of us, this is what our realities are today if there's no resistance. So we are pause with the calls. We'll be back with our final thoughts for tonight. This is Africa on the Moon. That's up. Some That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a calling terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay, one nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mossadegh. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Glenn Beck is the racist. Got the strip with getting bomb. Obama didn't say shit. After you divorce yourself from the right wing propaganda campaign, it's all simple and plain. America could stand the game. Your president got an African name. Now who you gon' blame? When they dropped the bombs out of them planes, using depleted uranium, babies looking like two-headed aliens. Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal, and nothing subliminal to it. That's how they do it. See the game they run. Give a fuck if he's cunning, articulate and handsome. Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man. Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face. He said, fuck. 
surprise Look at Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice They didn't change shit How niggas fresh off the slave ship You all burn in hell, even Michelle Abomination Was getting bomb, Obama didn't say shit. What's the bigger threat from Osama or from Obama? Military bases from Chagos to Okinawa. I say things that other rappers won't say. Cause my mind never closed like Guantanamo Bay. Hope you didn't feel the statue or tattoo your arm. Cause the drones are still flying over Pakistan. Did he defend the war? No. He extended more. Even had the time to attempt the crew in Ecuador. Morales and Chavez. The states are on a hunt for your military now stationed on bases in Colombia. Take a trip to the past and tell them I was right. Ask Ali Abu Nima and Jeremiah Wright. Jones over Pakistan, Yemen and Libya. Is Obama the bomber getting ready for Syria? First black president, the masses were hungry. But the same president just bombed an African country like... Back to Africa on the Move. Africa on the Move is a weekly program. It's part of the Pan African International Movement. It comes under the banner of the African Women's Association. We try to bring you information and deal with issues, ideas that are impacting our people on a global basis and from a Pan African experience. We invite you to join us every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Time. And right now, if you have any questions or comments concerning this show or others, we encourage you to email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us, email us, let us know, and we can tell you how you can support this radio station. We try not only to speak truth to power, but also to provide you with information so that you can think and organization so you can act and can act more clearly. This is the role and function of Africa on the Move, right here for you. So in our closing remarks, we'd like to now bring back our political panelists and analysts. They will share with us their closing remarks, and if they have any announcements they would like to make. We will first start off with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your closing remarks for tonight. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. Um, I just wish that um, we could all study, 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 and turn ourselves into revolutionaries and uh, conscious people who are stone cold sober and guided by great feelings of love for the people. And this is, this is my prayer. Um, um, I, I just hope that um, um, we can do this again next Sunday. Thank you. We'd like to thank you always, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Next one, Brother Moses, we're bringing Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, you'll find a comments and any announcements you may have. Yeah, my, 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 my question to the community is this. Um, what are we supposed to do when law is lawless? Recently, uh, Clarence, just, Chief Justice, uh, I'm sorry, Justice Clarence Thomas, admitted he wants to create a, 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 a process in the Supreme Court in which uh, President, uh, you know, the previous rulings will have no bearing at all in terms of you know of future rulings, uh, that is crazy because what happens is that if in fact you take, don't take into consideration previous rulings, 
then what happens is that any ruling that you make has devastating impact in terms of that particular law. For instance, uh, Clarence Thomas talked about the fact that he wants to put a ban on all white lunches, all, all white lunch counters. In other words, he's saying discrimination is okay. When it comes to child labor laws, for example, he would say that it's okay to treat children as grown, grown men and women. So clearly uh, this, this lawlessness that he's espousing is very, very scary, but nonetheless, this man represents the highest court in the land. So clearly, we got some we got some issues to address. We got some problems to uh, address, and we must we, we we must give some serious thought in terms of organization. And as always, I encourage everyone to unravel the matrix. And everyone have a good day. Thank you, Brother Hackey, for your contribution to today's program. Every now we go with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final remarks or any announcements you'd like to make? Certainly, I encourage all Africans uh, to join an organization that is working for our people's liberation because uh, we must be organized. That is the only way we're going to be able to change uh, the future from, uh, uh, from the, from our, uh, uh, from the bleak present that we you know, that we exist in. Uh, one organization is the all African people's revolutionary party GC Our website is www.a-aprp-gc.org. If you visit that website, you can learn more about uh, about our program, history, and uh, uh, political line of our organization. Uh, Please uh, visit that website whenever you get time. And check out our last uh, uh, African Liberation Day symposium as well. Thanks. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. And in closing, we'd like to say to our supporters, the listening audience, and the world is that the only way the world will get better, it can only do that through your participation. If you want to change the world, then you must act upon it. You must be the agent. You must be the catalyst to bring about the change that you are seeking. And the best way to bring about that change is through organization. So we ask you, if you love your people, if you love Mother Africa, if you love humanity, the best way to make your proper contribution is to get organized. So our call tonight is for Africans and all freedom loving just people to get organized, fight the powers that be, put an end to the rampant um, rampant behavior of imperialism, capitalism, Zionism, neocolonialism, racism, all systems that exploit human beings. This is your task. Let's unite. And on that note, we encourage you to join us next Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m., on Africa on the Move. Again, if you'd like to support us or become part of our support um, organization membership, please write us on Africa on the Move 2 at gmail.com. Until next time, like always, through our art, through our culture, we will right. use it as a tool to fight against our people. And this is a message we'd like to leave with you that was spoken. I have a little brother, Michael.
one black man who went to a good, essentially white high school in the city of New York. That's you right. obviously had had a good education. That's a good many of the people who work with you here in SNCC can say the same thing. And we're saying that... And you're a black man who came from a New York ghetto. And we're saying that there's a system that allows for one or two black people to get out. And that that's the rationale for keeping other black people down. And it has nothing to do with the unwillingness or inability of the Negro to help himself and to work hard. That's the rationale, that the reason why black people aren't this is because they're lazy, unambitious, stupid, have rhythm, and they eat watermelon. You call on the black man to refuse to respond to his draft call. That's correct. And we will continue to do so while there's breath in our bodies. Do you really believe that the military policies of the United States are designed to exterminate the black man, as you've said? I most certainly do. I look at the recent statement by racist McNamara, who says that 30% of the people that are going to be drafted now under his new system are going to be black people. And that's nothing more than black urban removal. The white liberal who supported civil rights for so long with time and effort and money, what is your feeling about him? I think that there's no reason why they should stop supporting the movement now. I certainly feel that if they're genuinely interested in black people, and since black people have charted a course, they believe in that program, they will continue to give to it. They need more white people to civilize whites. They need them to civilize the savages in Cicero who throw rocks and bricks at a peaceful and lovable black man like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would not even hurt a fly. Well, that's very important, because our uncles and our fathers and our older brothers died in World War I fighting Nazism to protect the Poles, and those same Poles turn around and throw rocks and bricks at us after we died to save their lives. And people talk about we are savages. Mr. Carmichael, if you had the chance to stand up in front of the white community and say anything you desired, say to him, understand me, white man, what would you say? I would say, understand yourself, white man, that the white man's burden should not have been preached in Africa, but it should have been preached among you that you need now to civilize yourself. You have moved to destroy and disrupt. You have taken people away. You have broken down their systems and you have called all that civilization. And we who have suffered at this are now saying to you, you are the killers of the dreams. You are the savages. Yes, it is you who have always been un civilized. Civilize yourself.